So many books, so little time. If you've ever said, I really want to read the Bible, I just can't fit it all in. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. This is the Bible Book Club. We'll read it to you and help you make sense of the most important book you'll ever read. Are you one of those people who likes to read the end of the book before you read the beginning? I'm not. Are you, Susan? Okay, I do. I do. I do cheat sometimes. <gasps> I do. You read the last yes. chapter yes, first. Yes, because sometimes I think I have it figured out in my head and I just need to confirm and de- or deny. You're one of those who likes spoilers. <laughs> sometimes. I'm not a fan. Well, if you're somebody who likes to read the end first, well, then just keep on listening to this episode. But if you like to start at the beginning of a book, go ahead and scroll on down or reset your iTunes and start with episode one if you are new here because you will miss a whole the whole first half of Genesis. And we and we do refer back. Yeah. A lot. So you want to start in one. But if you are with us and you've been listening all this time, thank you for listening and we hope you're enjoying Bible Book Club. Get a bunch of friends, start listening together and start discussing just like we do. So what I'm going to do now is catch you up where we are in chapter 32 and 33. So last week, Jacob wrestled with his relationships. The critical wrestling match, though, was with God. (laughs) Ding, ding. God won (laughs) in a decisive blow to Jacob's hip. However, when God wins, everyone wins, right? Jacob won by learning and that clinging to the Lord for wisdom rather than relying on his own resourcefulness was a more effective strategy. Well, isn't that a good thing for all of us? Exactly. Jacob also began a new journey and his journey as the patriarch of the leader of a, the nation of Israel. Correct. And Correct. That's where we are now. So today we turn, turn to chapter 34 and we're going to cover 35. In chapter 34, we are on patriarch number three, remember, Jacob, who remember also got a new name, Israel. Why this family? Are we still covering this family? Because God plans to rescue and bless this rebellious world through Abraham's family with the promised Savior, the Messiah, who will bring justice and peace. So that's coming in the future, but he's going to do it through this one family. Now, the cool thing about Abraham and his sons is that they repeatedly fail like we do on their journey. And God is repeatedly faithful to rescue and bless them, pointing us to that ultimate rescue that will come from Jesus that we desperately need because we can't do it on our own. A new tragedy will take place today. And the cool thing about Genesis is that it documents many, many life tragedies. Today, we will cover a sin well-known to every nation in the world. This is a story of rape, rage, and revenge. Today, Jacob and Leah's daughter will become the victim of rape. Jacob's sons will fail for the first time, succumbing to rage and revenge. It will not be the last time that this band of brothers falls. We're going to see. This story is also going to set the stage for the beginning of the end of this book. Yes, we are in chapter 34. We have 15 and 35, 15 more chapters to go. And God is going to clearly establish what Joseph is going to verbalize in chapter 50, that while some people intend to do harm, God can bring about good through evil. And we have studied a lot about good and evil, starting with Adam and Eve. And we actually have a printable called The Path to Good and Evil that we've referred to many times. And we're going to talk about that again today. Jacob's sons have an evil streak, but God is going to use them for good despite it. That is good news. The bad 
bad news is that the choices Jacob's sons make in this chapter will have consequences for the future of the tribes of Israel. We won't learn how until the end of this book. All right, the setting. The setting is this, Jacob delays and Dinah plays. Remember, Jacob was supposed to go home after his time in Padam Aran with Laban. In Genesis 28, before he went to Padam Aran, Jacob has that dream of Bethel and Jacob promises to return to his father's house. It said, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey so that I return safely to my father's house. He makes a vow. Then in Genesis 31, 13, God says to Jacob, I have seen what Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now leave this land at once and go back to your native land. However, Jacob delayed. And here's the evidence. He may have even delayed as many as 10 years in Succoth and then in Shechem. These are pagan cities of idolatry. We ended last chapter and we read in Genesis 33, 17, that Jacob, however, went to Succoth where he built a place for himself. You don't build a place if you don't plan on camping there for a while. Then Jacob safely arrived at the city of Shechem and camped. He bought from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. You don't buy land unless you're going to camp. So he kind of camped in these two places. The delay meant that his children, because remember they were young and his household were exposed to the surrounding cultures and foreign worship practices. Their devotion to God is slipping. Well, that's kind of reminding me of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Gosh, these families, they just keep making the same mistakes over and over and over. Exactly. And they slipped. Jacob was in the wrong place at the wrong time. His young family's faith was not up to the challenge of living in Shechem. The need for separation so that the nation of Israel could grow in national and religious independence is going to become so great by the end of Genesis that God is going to intervene with a forced separation that lands them in Egypt for 400 years as slaves. But that is our next book, Exodus. Today, Jacob's delay led to Dinah's temptation and and ultimately really sad. Here we go down that path to good and evil. Remember that printable, we'll put it in the show notes again, but the printable demonstrates how there are temptation and choices that we make that lead down the path. Chapter 34. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. All right, what is Dinah's temptation here? Every well, one of these people is going to have a temptation. She wants to hang out with all the cool girls. Exactly. Social entertainment. She wants to socialize with the cool girls, like you said. Perhaps she just had too many brothers and not enough sisters back at the tent. I don't know. But she makes a choice and that's the problem. There's a temptation and a choice. And the choice she makes is to leave the protection of her family and enter the culture unprotected. Now let's talk about the rape. Both Egyptians and Canaanites at the time regarded unmarried women abroad as their lawful prey. You don't go anywhere without protection. And that usually means your brothers or your father. To them, taking Dinah was not wrong and they are not going to 
apologize for it. Shechem was the son of the ruler or kind of like the king. It just says the ruler, just like the kings in Genesis 12 and 20, who took Sarah, remember when Abraham lied Mm -hmm. and in Genesis 26, who took Rebecca. This was a standard practice as a king or a ruler, a leader. I see a pretty girl. I want it. I take it. And if she's not protected or there's not somebody there to put up a fight about it, it's prey. So is this Dinah's fault or was this her brother's fault for not being there with her? Well, she decides to go out and I have to imagine that she knew she was not supposed to go out. Right. Without asking them, hey guys, I want to go visit my friends. Could somebody come with me? She probably would have been told. What teenage girl wants to have to carry their big brother along with them? None. (laughs) Dinah was also probably pretty young. It said things I read 13 and 16. And again, she should have known this custom, yet she risked the danger to play outside. Her desire, hello Eve, hello temptation, got the better of her. Now, I want to be a little careful here because I want to make sure everybody listening knows you're not implying that it was Dinah's fault that she got raped no, no, at no. all. We're just bringing out the fact that she went out, she wasn't really she supposed to, and there's a consequence because of it, but it is not yeah. her fault. No, 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 no. But she knew the custom that she would be prey and she took the risk. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Verse two. When Shechem, son of Hamar, the Hivite, the ruler of that area saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. His temptation was lust, infatuation, self-indulgence, all of those things wrapped up into one. But it does say he loved her. Okay, make no excuses for this man. The choice he took was rape. He raped someone that he knew he wouldn't otherwise ever have. He knew that they were not mixing it up with his people. And it was probably part of his plan. Now, rape, consensual sex at the time, was a way of forcing a sneaky marriage that otherwise would not be permitted by parents. Think about it. Well, if we have sex together, our parents will have no choice but to let us get married. married. The Bible is filled, however, with people who suffer brutal crimes. And rape is actually mentioned nine times in the Bible. Uh, The story that closely mirrors this one, though, is the story of David's son, Amnon, who rapes his sister Tamar in 2 Samuel 13. And a similar thing happens brother of Tamar takes revenge and commits murder. So it it was a very uh, abhorrent thing to these people. Rape was not condoned, but it did happen. Just like today. Mm -hmm. All right, continuing on in verse five. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. When Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob, meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they had heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done such an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. All right, we talked about the rape. Let's talk about the rage here. Jacob remains quiet and oddly, which and oddly enough for a man who always seems to have a strategy, no strategy develops, which I think is a little out of character for him. Yeah, because for a father, how could you wait? How could you not be outraged? Why is it that the brothers are more angry? It says they're furious. Yeah, it is a little odd for him. Now, I did dig into that. When his sons return, they're enraged. And it seems that Jacob doesn't diffuse their anger either. So maybe he was enraged too. We don't know. Maybe he was enraged and he knew that they would be mad enough to do something about it. So he Well, waited? he waited because it seems, from what I could read, that um, 
Some commentaries have suggested that according to the custom of the day, the father could not act independently without the consent of the brothers who were mainly responsible for safeguarding their sister's rights, Mm, which I think is is interesting. However, he doesn't do anything. And surely if he had acted like David in 2 Samuel, his sons would have followed his leadership. So was he also enraged? I don't know. But we don't hear anything of his leadership in the in the next part of the story. In the case of Tamar, David does nothing. And two years later, Absalom, Tamar's brother, kills Amnon. Personally, I think that if Jacob and David had taken a leadership role, both cases would have had a better ending than revenge and murder. Well, that's a great point. Continuing on, verse 8. But Hamor said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Well, everybody in the story has a motive and Hamar's temptation is prosperity and greed. Association with the wealthy Jacob was a win for this ruler. It's just how people got rich back then. I mean, we saw it even in, you know, mm-hmm. the kings of Europe. They married their daughters and their sons to other lands and it just made them stronger. Now, the choice that he makes is to cut a deal that benefits his kingdom. It's a greed play. Verse 11. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. All right, so we're going to move on from Dinah's temptation of rape to Simeon and Levi's deception and murder. Verse 13, because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give to you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. One of two strategies are at play here. Either the brothers are planning on disobeying God by intermarrying with these people, or they're being deceitful and stalling for time. We know it's the latter because it's clear said they replied deceitfully. Jacob may be totally out of clever ideas, but his sons are not. They have inherited a combination of their father's, their grandmother Rebecca's, and their uncle Laban's gift for deception. And they have no intention of becoming one people with Shechem. Verse 18, their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man who was the most honored of all his father's family lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the men of their city. These men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will agree to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property, and all their other animals become ours? So let us agree to their terms and they will settle among us. All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, 
Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor, his son Shechem, to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob's came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? All right. Simeon and Levi's temptation was to take revenge and their choice was murder. We've talked about the rape. We've talked about the rage. Let's talk about the revenge. Jacob's sons deceived him in a similar way to the way he deceived others. They were not satisfied with the actions taken, nor should they have been. To intermarry with this people was contrary to God's plan for them. However, to trick and kill them was not God's will either. Simeon and Levi, Leah's sons, and Dinah's full brothers led the deception, and nowhere does it say they repented. They were defensive about their actions. This will not end well for them when it comes time for the blessing and the future of their tribes in chapter 49. And just as a note, sin unaddressed leads to anger unsuppressed. And that's what's going to happen in the case of Dave and Tamar's rape too, is, is because Jacob and David didn't take action, the sin was unaddressed and the anger just raged. Yeah. And that's a really good point because it is a hard thing to forgive sometimes, but really if you harbor unforgiveness in your heart, it really hurts you more than it hurts the other person that you're mad at because like you just said, it will fester and it'll grow. Fester. It'll and either become, become a seed of just pure anger in your own soul. And it's really bad. Which turns to bitterness. There's a saying from a pastor in Georgia named Johnny Hunt. And it says that unforgiveness leads to bitterness and bitterness is the only poison that we drink and wait for someone else to die. I love that. Oh my goodness. What is God going to do with this crumbling little family nation that we have here? Oh, he has plans. God makes a divine move. Chapter 35. Then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. God tells Jacob once again, as he did in 31, move to Bethel. Go back to the place you promised you would when I appeared to you. Remember that stairway, the angels. Hello, Jacob. Return to me and don't delay. Yeah. And I can't believe he does stay there so long after having to wait all those 20 years to even get his wives. Yeah, he would have maybe like been sick and tired of waiting around places. I don't know. Is it like you're tired and you just want to take a little vacation maybe? <laughs> yeah. Or just like Lot. He really just wanted to stay there because it was fun. Yeah. I don't know. Verse two. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Then come, let us go up to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings in their ears and Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Jacob finally takes control and moves in obedience to God. Jacob obeys and calls his family to repentance. He needed no other warning for he had clear evidence that his family's faith had 
slipped. So he commanded them to, one, get rid of their foreign gods. These are not the ones Rachel brought. I did a little more research on this Mm -hmm. after last week. Rachel's were household gods that were images of their ancestors. It was more a tradition of family heritage than worship. He then tells them to purify themselves and change their clothes. And then he says, leave this, let's leave this place and go to Bethel. And Bethel means house of God. So this is definitely a kind of recommitting of his. He's learned that he cannot, his family cannot mix it up with others yet. They just don't have the faith. So they weren't Rachel's gods, the household gods that she brought, but what were they? Were they the gods of the people that they had mixed in with and then they started to worship and that was idolatry? No. So they had accumulated some of those things from Shechem and he tells them to bury him. But apparently what Rachel called household gods were really depictions of their ancestors, like their grandparents and stuff like that. They were like carved out of wood or whatever, and they looked like them. And it was more a tradition of this is the people that we came from, which again, remember, if you had those in your possession, it meant that you were the one that received the inheritance going forward. It was kind of like an inheritance. Still, it's a lot of money that they buried. I bet you there was a treasure map somewhere. Could be. (laughs) Verse five. Then they set out and the terror of God fell on the towns all around them so that no one pursued them. Jacob and all the people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel because it was there that God revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. Now, Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died and was buried under the oak outside Bethel. So it was named Alon Bakuth. All right, I just know when we get to heaven, the Bible's gonna be 20 times this size because it, it often seems like there's little pieces who are left out. This means, Alan Bakuth means Oak of Weeping, but it doesn't tell us, we're not sure how his mom's nurse came to even be with him. Maybe she came to him after Rebecca's death. And it is kind of sweet that Jacob loved his mother so much that she was a comfort to him in Rebecca's absence and that we even get a mention that she died here because you're right. It is kind of misplaced because they don't typically mention the nurse. No. And he left his, he didn't bring her with him when he went to Patamaram and he's still coming back. So at some point she sought him out and was there with him. So it's kind of, again, like why, how I want to know more questions for God when we get there. Exactly. Verse nine, after Jacob returned from Patamaram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community of nations will come from you and kings will be among your descendants. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I also give to you and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. Jacob called the place where God had talked to him, Bethel. Jacob obeys and God responds to Jacob's obedience. God blessed him for his obedience with safety. No other tribes bother them as they travel. God appears again at Bethel and repeats his promise to Abraham's family. He reaffirms Jacob's name is now Israel. He reaffirms his descendants will become a nation and community of nations. And he reaffirms that they will receive the promised land, just like he did for his father and his grandfather. And God is a God of promises. We're going to see this over and over again, this repeating and affirming. He chases Israel 
Israel constantly. They, he promises to do these things and they disobey. Then he rescues them and blesses them and brings them back and they start over. And was it just that names were really important to the Israelites? Names really meant something. Is that why he keeps on changing people's names? Yes, because they have these epiphanies where they become believers in him and the promise and he changes their name. Like a coming of age. Yes. Although he never changed Isaac's name, but Isaac was just different than Abraham and Jacob. I've always said that. Abraham and J- Jacob had a little more. They were a little more like. Okay, moving on to the next part. Jacob loses the one he loves. Verse 16. Then they moved on from Bethel. While they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, Don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Benoi, which means son of my trouble. But his father named him Benjamin, son of my right hand. Nice, nice father. Don't call me son of my trouble. (laughs) So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar. And to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. Benjamin is born on the way to Bethlehem and Rachel dies on the way to Bethlehem. This is kind of important to know. Yes, it is sad. Because he loves her best. He loves her. He loves her. So just so you understand the geography, starting in the north and heading south, you start at Bethel, then you hit Ramah, then you hit Jerusalem, then you hit Bethlehem. And they're all on the same road. And I say that because I want to cover something else. It's a little segue, just so you just to get out of Genesis for a minute. Rachel weeps at Ramah. I want to explain this because you can read about it in two different verses in the Bible, not in Genesis. Rachel is mentioned in the Bible by both the prophet Jeremiah and by the disciple Matthew. In both Jeremiah 31, 15 and in Matthew 2, 16, Rachel is mourning for her children or her children's children's, her descendants is what they're referring to, who are no more because they're dead, but for different reasons in both those verses. So let's talk about this. It's kind of cool. Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17 says this. This is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. This is what the Lord says. Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord. They will return from the land of the enemy. So there is hope for your descendants, declares the Lord. Your children will return to their own land. Okay, in this verse, in Jeremiah, Rachel weeps at Ramah for her children in exile. Fast forward. Yeah, and can we just explain to them, in case they don't know this, that Jeremiah was a prophet. He's a prophet. And he's in the Old Testament, which is prophesying for the future of what is going to happen in the New Testament and Jesus. And Matthew, the other one who mentions this, is a disciple. In the New Testament. So fast forward, because this happens, Jeremiah happens way after. The 12 sons of Jacob are going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 tribes are going to split into two nations. They're not going to be friends forever. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. So the tribes are going to have a split. Ramah was a small town about five or six miles north of Jerusalem. Remember I said it goes Bethel, Ramah, Jerusalem, Bethlehem. They're all just to us a very small distance apart. But to them back then, you know, they had to walk. 
So it's located five or six miles north of Jerusalem, located on the border between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern of Judah. Thus, the community of Ramah could function as a representative of both the north and the south. Now, Rachel was the mother of both Joseph and Benjamin. Joseph was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh, both of whom were of Israel, the northern kingdom, while Benjamin was of the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom. So her, her two sons split. And Judah is where we're going to get Jesus, the tribe of Correct. Judah. Now, Rama was in the middle of these two kingdoms, which is the split of the nation of Israel. Rama was the place from which the Babylonians assembled the people of Judah for their long trek into the captivity of Babylon. Rachel, who died a millennium before this happened. So Rachel dies, a thousand years goes by, and now we have the split in the kingdoms, is figuratively watching her children depart from her grave into exile. This is kind of a figurative thing. She's weeping for her lost children, the entire nation, north and south, as they're taken into exile. The desolation was so heart-wrenching to her that it seemed that her children were not, i.e. they were dead. She simply refused to be comforted. The Lord then speaks to her, however, and instructs her, you know, metaphorically, to refrain from crying and promises that there is hope for her descendants for they will return to the promised land. So was Jeremiah the prophet seeing Rachel lamenting yes, like this he's kind of, in yeah. heaven? He's seeing her in heaven lamenting for her? He's seeing children? her in Rama. She weeps in Rama. She, that's where she's buried. She's buried in Rama. But what what I'm saying is it's he's seeing her in death. Yes, figuratively. It's not yes. like something no. that he's having a flashback or something. Right. Like it. It's he's seeing her dead. Now we're going to read Matthew 2, 16 through 18, because he's also going to reference this. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So Matthew is using this again, except that Rachel is now weeping at Ramah for the infanticide of her children. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, remember. Herod had learned of a great Jewish king that was going to be born in Bethlehem and feeling threatened, ordered the infanticide of all Hebrew boys under the age of two. Ramah and Bethlehem are about only 10 miles apart. Rachel died near Ramah while traveling toward Bethlehem. Thus, she weeps at Ramah because she is buried there and she weeps over what is happening in Bethlehem to her descendants. Now, even more, more thousands of years later, because it's as if she's still looking in the direction and her children are no more. The historical association of Rachel's tears in Genesis, Jeremiah, and Matthew are so cool. In Genesis, 1900s BC, Rachel dies giving birth while on the road to Bethlehem. During her suffering, the midwife tries to comfort her with the news that she is having another son. In this way, her child Benjamin is both her cause of weeping and her hope for the future. 
Fast forward in Jeremiah 580 BC, a thousand years later, over a thousand, Rachel weeps over her children, this time because they are being led into exile near the very spot where she's buried. All this is happening at Ramah. She is then comforted with the promises that her children will return. Once again, her offspring are both her cause of weeping and her hope for the future. In Matthew 5 BC, another 500 years later, Rachel weeps this time over the slaughter of the children at Bethlehem. No words are given to her in Matthew, but the very next verse speaks of Herod's death and the return of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus to the land of Israel. Just as in Genesis and Jeremiah, the situation seems bleak, but her offspring are both her cause of weeping and her hope for the future. This is a fascinating use of his historical association from Old Testament to prophecy to New Testament. They're making an analogy based on this geographical reference of Rama in the midst of where Rachel was going and how her children keep coming back to this place and keep keep suffering. I just want to ask you, Rachel has Benjamin. Leah's son, though, is Judah, which is where Jesus is going to come from. So all Correct. this lamenting over her children, it's really the, the siblings. The children of Israel. It's the children of Israel, Correct. but it's not still the line of Jesus. It's the nation of Israel. But they really do spend a lot of time and focus on this analogy. But Benjamin and Judah are closely aligned in the Southern Kingdom. They are the ones that try to adhere to God's um, worship, you know, whereas the the Northern Kingdom is going to go totally AWOL. Judah does in the end also. I mean, the Southern Kingdom does also, but they fight hard not to. I think we need a graphic because just like when we studied the sons of Noah, I I need to see it. Yes. It's, I tracked with you, but it's a lot it's a and it's lot. complicated. And I hope the listeners tracked with you, but I think a graphic would help. Yeah, it's hard, but I wanted to bring it in. I know it's a, it's a, it's an aside because we have to understand how the whole Bible works together. And especially when you start studying the major and minor prophets, they refer to all these little things that if you didn't study, that's why, okay, if you're jumping in on Genesis um, 34, please go back to Genesis 1. You got to go back to Genesis I know I said it was okay in the beginning of this episode, but I changed my mind. You're not going to understand because that's why we're going to try to march through the Old Testament because all these things point towards the Messiah that's coming. And God so ties things together to increase our faith that only this could happen. There are other historical parallels in in relate just related to this one Matthew passage. I'm going to give you some and you may not track with me, but check this out. Back to King Herod, you know, who orders the slaughter of children to protect his rule. He hears from the Magi that a king's been born and he's freaking out. Think about this. He did that just as the Egyptian Pharaoh ordered the slaughter of the Hebrew children to protect his kingdom. In the era in Exodus, we're going to cover Exodus next. Same thing. Then one child, Moses, escapes in a basket, the slaughter, and goes on to deliver his people from captivity and exile in Egypt. In the same way, Jesus escapes the slaughter of all these innocent children that Herod's trying to kill, ironically, by going into exile in Jesus. Remember, Joseph and Mary take Jesus and flee with him to Egypt for safety, which is so crazy because Moses was in in Egypt. So it's like almost like a flip. Like the Israelites who were led into Egypt by Jacob's son, Joseph. Remember, Joseph is going to be Jacob's son and Joseph's going to save them from the famine and bring them all back to Egypt. Jesus is led into Egypt by his father, also a man named Joseph. 
to see where all the generational um, repetition happens in a bad way in, in Genesis, it's going to happen in a good way too. It's like saying just the fact that Jesus's dad's name was Joseph kind of points back to the fact that Joseph brought Jacob's people out of the famine. It's all like so similar. And there's another reason that I like looking at all of those similarities and comparisons and all that stuff that you just brought out about the Jeremiah and the Matthew passage is it also reinforces the fact that the Bible is God inspired. And there have been times and I don't know about you, but my life when I've questioned like, how could this really be? Did he, where is he really born of a virgin or was there some other explanation? Well, there's no contradictions in the Bible. None. Once you really start to study this and look at it the way that you just did. And there's so many more examples of this that it just proves out. And even the scholars agree that it proves out that there are no contradictions. You have to study the culture. You have to study what was happening during the day and you have to tie in. The problem with the Bible too is that it's not sequential. It is mixed up time-wise. And so (laughs) if you really laid it out sequentially, it's easier to understand what was happening when. And there are Bible reading tracks that will help you do that if you want to do that. We've looked those up before. Well, just as Rachel was comforted with the promise that her children would be restored and just as Moses's birth was a sign that the Israelites' deliverance was near, so Matthew's readers are meant to understand that the long-awaited Messiah has been born and the hope of salvation is close at hand. Well, getting back to yeah. our story. <laughs> Jacob moves on. <laughs> that was quite a departure, Susan. It was. I'm sorry. But it, it was, was It was great. It was a Bible bender if I've ever. <laughs> you yeah, end all Bible benders. I can explain it. Verse 21. Israel moved on again and pitched his tent beyond Megalidare. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard of it. Okay, so don't be confused, but you know, Israel is Jacob now. All right, this is just another little hint, a little slip stuck in there, just one sentence. Reuben went in and slept with his father's concubine. It's a little hint of what will come of yet another son in the future. Jacob heard of this and on his deathbed, he won't forget. You really should not sleep with your father's wife or your brother's yeah. mother yeah. No. if you want to get a blessing on not your father's deathbed. <laughs> Just so you're going to hear about it in the end. Jacob had 12 sons, the sons of Leah, Reuben, the firstborn of Jacob, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishkar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Rachel's servant, Bilhah, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Leah's servant, Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padanaram. Jacob came home to his father Isaac in Mamre, near Kiradaba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. Then he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of years. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Jacob finally makes it home to his father, Isaac, and Isaac must have been overjoyed to see him after all these years. Isaac dies and and Jacob and Esau bury him together, which I think is kind of nice. Well, that's a sweet little ending to this part of our story where Jacob and Esau can finally reconcile enough to bury their father, which is uh, a nice nod to them being able to put the past behind them, bygones be bygones. But next week, we are going to get into Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat for you Broadway fans. <laughs> Susan's favorite. favorite story in the whole entire Bible. Well, maybe not whole entire, but one of her favorites. This my is going to be really character. fun. Joseph is definitely one of my favorite characters. It's one that you may think you've heard, but you haven't heard this version.
What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.